Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom before honor comes humility. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You know, fools and cowards, like the centurion in Matthew chapter 27. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew chapter 27 Verse 54. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 420 of the Bible as Literature podcast. It is always important to consider the audience of the text when hearing a specific gospel book. The title of this podcast is The Bible as Literature because we are dealing with a text. You cannot, as we have said many times, take the four gospels and put them together as one story and make a movie. We're not dealing with four books about something that happened. We're dealing with four different books that are put together in a specific order, a canonical order, which becomes its own authoritative construction. But each individual book says what it says. Each individual book has its own agenda as a story, and each individual agenda comes together as part of a larger storyline within the biblical canon. In the Gospel of Mark, the temple had not yet been destroyed. In the Gospel of Matthew, we are in the post-temple era. This is even though Matthew comes first in the canon. Genesis comes first in the biblical canon, but it wasn't the first text to be written. It just pulls it all together. The way you write a paper and write the introduction last, because the introduction pulls together all of the work you've been doing all along, as does the conclusion. So in the case of Matthew, if we know it's post-destruction of the temple, And the church to whom Matthew is writing, that's why, dear listeners, 
And I know you'll lose the argument at Christmas, and you won't be able to one-up your Protestant relatives at Thanksgiving. I hate to break it to you, the church did not write the Bible. Matthew addressed his gospel from outside the church to the church, which by the time of its writing was comprised of Jews and Gentiles. It's post-destruction of the temple. Which means the tension that he was addressing, critiquing, and judging. Matthew is judging the church, not building it. He is critiquing the church, not establishing it or growing it. The judgment that Matthew is leveling against the church is different than the judgment that Mark is bringing forth against the church. Mark was dealing with standard tribalism. Jewish followers of Jesus looking down their nose against Gentile followers of Jesus. In the case of Matthew, <laughs> we're now on the other side of Paul's argument in Romans, which is why you should realize that even though I'm talking about the destruction of the temple, the whole thing is a construct, because Paul's letter to the Romans is playing out in the literary historical placement of these books within the canon. Matthew's coming on the other side of Paul's argument, where the judgment is now applied to the Gentiles. So we're no longer critiquing Jews who follow Jesus for looking down their nose at the uncircumcised. We're now dealing with a church that is eclectic, that is a mixed church, so you would be inclined to say, as an American who thinks you figured it out, we've now evolved, Father Mark, as you have your finger on the trigger or the button or whatever, fighting for your rights. You're inclined to say, well, it's a mixed church. Everything's fine. They're tolerant. They've accepted each other. No, because now they've just formed a new tribe with the same old sins. And there are other people to abuse. And so now, different characters are committing the same old sins, Dr. Benton. This character of the centurion, while he's not particularly developed as a character in one or another gospel, you see that he's complicated in the way that the different biblical writers view him, because he represents the Roman army, which is the most hostile force among the Gentiles. So, obviously a big win for the church if they get a Roman soldier in there, as we saw earlier in Matthew 8. But it's also dangerous because, like you said a moment ago, Father, Gentiles have the same tendency to sin and rebel as much as the Jewish person it's not your tribe that makes you sin or saves you, but it has to do with how obedient you are. The fact that he's an outsider who comes in can either be good news or bad news. 
How obedient is he once he gets here? How much does he become one of us? And when he becomes one of us, is he becoming one of us in the best way possible or the worst way possible? This is what makes the centurion so complex. We see different facets of this very simple centurion when you look at the different gospel accounts, which we can talk about more once we've read through this verse, because there are different ways of looking at this person. And when it comes to the destruction of the temple, is there hope that we're going to save the temple? Is there hope that the Gentiles are going to come to our side? Or once the temple is destroyed, do we count out the Gentiles as just as corrupt as anybody else? These are always the questions that these authors are having to deal with as they write their stories about you know, what it means to, in the case of Matthew, inaugurate the kingdom of heaven. When God inaugurates the kingdom of heaven, what does that mean? How do we understand that? And how do we conduct our lives appropriately? This is what the reader, the hearer of the text is supposed to be doing. What is the significance of the inauguration of the kingdom of heaven? What is the significance of this played out through this Gentile centurion, this Gentile soldier who is confronting this new world order, the new regime of the Lord of hosts and the kingdom of heaven? I want to bring something top of mind from last week, Richard, before we proceed with verse 54. And that is the way that Jesus gives up his spirit. This must be at the forefront when we hear verse 54, or we will not understand the difference between the centurion's reaction, which comes later in the Gospel of Mark and the canon, and the centurion's reaction here. Because remember, we're still dealing with the tension between the negative title, Son of God, which is a negative title when a human being claims it, because it's a kingly title. That's the problem with theosis. You're not allowed to be divine if you're a human being in Genesis. That is the sin. You are not allowed... It is taboo. It is haram. You're not even allowed to build a temple because you're messing around with things that you're not allowed to mess around with. Only Elohim in Genesis 1 through 4 is king. That's why it's the story of the creation of the heavens and the earth. If you trace the line back, it's not to a human king. There is no apotheosis. If you trace it back, the only one sitting on the throne is the Father of Jesus Christ. Just as we said at the beginning of Matthew that Jesus can only ascend the throne as a shepherd, he's the shepherd king, he can only ascend the throne as a son of man. He can't ascend as a son of God on this side of the crucifixion. You cannot realize your eschatology or you're going to be left with nothing but another Hitler, another Ramses, another American president, another Russian czar. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus when he saw the earthquake and the things that were happening became very frightened and said, truly, This was the Son of God. Unfortunately, 
When people preach on this verse, Richard, the first thing they do is syncretize the centurion across every gospel and assume it's the same thing. Oh, isn't it so wonderful the Gentiles believe in God now? And guess what? They learned it from Plato and Aristotle. (laughs) Somebody posted a picture. Literally, I couldn't believe my eyes when I saw this blasphemy, Rich. There's actually a picture of an icon of Plato and Aristotle. Scripture is written against Plato. And somebody posted an icon of this nonsense. You think the centurion is a good guy? The centurion in Matthew is whatever Matthew says he is for Matthew's purpose. Nobody, nobody who's amazed at the fireworks show, nobody who cries out, oh, he's the son of God in Matthew is playing for the right team. The last time somebody was excited about the fireworks show in Matthew was the disciples in chapter 17 after the transfiguration. And Jesus, using the same phraseology, told them to calm down. It's not good to be amazed. How many times have we said it, Rich, on this program? Do not be amazed at the fireworks show. Be amazed at the gospel teaching. It's in class when you're struggling to understand what the heck the professor is saying. That's the thing that should be amazing. Not God save the queen and the fireworks show. It's just really tiresome at how easily people are fooled because they want Jesus to come down from the cross and to ascend the chariot. And now Jesus has gone back to the Adama. Ben Adam has been executed and his executioner in Matthew, different than the Gospel of Mark, in Matthew missed the fact that he acquiesced, he yielded up his spirit so that the Father could do his business because the Father is the King. So Jesus is fully exposed as the suffering servant under the control of his king so that he truly can be established as the Messiah in the resurrection, as the son of man on the throne, not as a son of God like Caesar. And the centurion, who is a constituent of the Gentile church, what does he do, Richard? He's amazed. He's afraid. Don't clap for him. Hear the text. Hear the text of Matthew. What we saw above when they wanted to give Jesus the vinegars to keep him alive so they could see a fireworks show. And sure enough, they got to see saints appearing. They got to see an earthquake. They got to see all kinds of great stuff. But remember, we've been saying this all along throughout the book of Matthew. Beware of the crowds because the crowds are excited, but they don't learn. They don't listen. They watch. They don't want to learn the teaching. And here, I really appreciate how much you emphasized not conflating these different stories because they do show different facets. And one thing that's very important in Matthew is that it's Centurion and those who are with him. 
In Mark and Luke, there's not any mention of others with him. So there's a little crowd here going on. Matthew doesn't use the word ochlos, but we see a crowd. It's the centurion and those with him. It's a bunch of soldiers. They're all excited together. They're all afraid together. And when they say that Jesus is the Son of God, the last person to call him the Son of God was Pilate. Like, there's not a good understanding of that term among wise people, let's just say. The wise don't understand what that means in Matthew. They can't determine who the Son of God is. Only people who don't know what they're talking about in Matthew call Jesus the Son of God, which then makes these folks, these Gentiles, these soldiers, suspect. Uh, The other thing is that Matthew emphasizes that it's the earthquake, because in Mark, it was when Jesus cried out and gave up the ghost that the centurion said, this is the Son of God. And in Luke, it's simply, he saw what was done. So it's not mentioning the thing that was done. But we see in Matthew that it's emphasized that it was the earthquake and the things that were done. What is it about the earthquake? There's nothing. There's no teaching when it comes to an earthquake. In the prophets, when the earth dances or the earth makes noise or the heavens make noise or something like this, this is only a testimony to what God is about to teach through his prophet. Here, an earthquake on its own is nothing. An earthquake is just noise. An earthquake is just a trembling of the land under you. That's it. And because it coincided with this guy dying, like, ooh, this must have been a special guy. Maybe. But Jesus, throughout this whole entire book, 26 and a half chapters, has been trying to say it's about the teaching, not about the fireworks show. You know, you mentioned this when you're talking about the Transfiguration Father. It's not the fact that he was glowing. It's not the fact that Elijah and Moses appeared with him. It's that Elijah and Moses confirmed what he was saying as well as the voice from the heavens. Listen to him was the final word. But here the centurion and his buddies don't get the message and listen to him. They don't have it. They're only impressed by the fireworks show, by the earthquake. And this is exactly what we were saying about why they wanted to keep Jesus alive, because maybe Elijah's going to come. Okay, fine, Elijah didn't come, but we got to see the saints come out of the graves, and we got to see the earthquake. Like, that was amazing. Hun, let me tell you what I saw today at work. Wow. It was like the Son of God or something. Like, that's all it is. They're amazed. It doesn't use the word amazed here, but it definitely is that kind of emotional reaction to what they're saying. It's an emotional reaction. They aren't listening. And this is why I'm always telling people to please read scripture. I had a discussion recently and people were wondering if we hear people and they're preaching, like, how do we know if they're true prophets or not? And I said, well, if they're true prophets, they're just repeating what the biblical prophets say, in which case you don't need them. Or they're contradicting what the prophets are saying in Scripture, which means you shouldn't be listening to them. So basically all that means is know what the prophets in the Bible are saying. Don't try to evaluate the preacher about whether you think he's a good guy or whether she's saying something true or something that resonates with you. Don't do it. Know your Scripture. You have to listen to Scripture constantly if you're going to be transformed by it, if you're going to have that new brain put in your skull, which Scripture calls a new heart put in your chest. Your brain has to be anew. If you're going to have 
any ears to hear what scripture, what Matthew is trying to tell you about the kingdom of heaven. Otherwise, the kingdom of heaven is the cloudy place that people go to after they die, and it's just a bunch of nonsense. Notice we've gotten to 26 and a half chapters. The kingdom of heaven is not about where you go when you die. It's not about where dogs go when they're, you know, good dogs go to heaven. Like, it's not about anything like that. The kingdom of heaven is a new regime. It's a new way of doing things. It's a new law, which is the yoke of love and duty. And this is what it's about. And this centurion is not like the centurion in chapter eight, who just said, hey, I believe you. This one, he's like, ooh, him and his buddies. So even the good centurion in chapter eight, you can't trust him to stay all the way through. He may stick it out, He may not. Loyalty is hard to come by. The verb that I mentioned that occurs both here and in chapter 17, foveome, which is the aorist passive indicative, it's third person plural for those who are interested in the Greek. It applies to the disciples, but also to the Gentile centurion. Both of them are afraid which connects them as being part of the same community. That's the point I was making at the beginning, Richard, about the church being really this one body that's made up of both Jew and Gentile in the context that Matthew is addressing in his story. So the church, which is made up of both communities, is being judged. And the centurion is disobeying the command of Jesus, which was given, again, earlier in chapter 17. He told them, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. Why are you afraid? You shouldn't be afraid. If you trust in the Lord's instruction, none of this is going to frighten you or take you off the path. The fear of the Lord, we hear in Scripture, is the beginning of wisdom, not the fear of earthquakes. What is it we are being challenged to fear in Scripture? Is it miracles? Is it signs and wonders? Or is it the Lord's instruction, with which he is functionally synonymous in the writings? That's the real question. And if you fear the Lord's instruction, then you have nothing to be afraid of. That's the test. That's the shame on us when someone being tortured in Abu Ghraib writes on his cell wall in Arabic, I'm not afraid of the Americans because I trust in God. That's the big joke here. The centurion just executed the Son of Man who wasn't afraid, and he's afraid of an earthquake? The jailer, the executioner, is afraid of what? And the Son of Man feared only whom? Friends, that's why you can't hear Scripture if you're sitting in an air-conditioned Tesla in North America. We need to be serious and stop debating with our Protestant relatives at Thanksgiving about who's right. And start praying and repenting for what happens in places 
like Abu Ghraib. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.